0: Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's biggest and best talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders, leaders and clinicians who are leading the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I'm the founder and CEO of a health tech company myself and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Now, before we get into the show, we have to do a bit of business at the front of the show, which is to remind everyone to follow us on the socials. It's at Health Tech Hour and at UK Health Radio. Stay on top of all of the great content, not just from this show, but from all the shows across the station. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people listening, maybe everybody listening, read the news last week about the government's new health and social care bill. The headlines were pretty dominated by the national insurance rise, which is obviously going to pay for it. Um, But, you know, there was a lot in there around how social care costs would be capped. Um, People under certain levels of assets won't have to pay anything. The state will cover it. And then between... Certain, I think it was 20K to 100K, then there'll be a kind of a subsidy in there. Now, today's guest is perfectly placed to give us his unique view on this. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to say that we, we schedule guests probably four to six weeks out because we're quite booked up. This, this looks like a very serendipitous guest booking given that it's the week after. Uh, I'd love to give my producers credit for that, but it was just one of those kind of um, a quirk of fate that, 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 this, that today's guest was, um, was booked on today. But anyway, Fergus Hay is the chair of Digital Home Visits Group, which is one of the leading social care providers in the UK, and a board member of RYSE, which is a leading digital health venture capital firm in the UK, investing in UK health tech businesses. Beyond that, Fergus has a 20 year plus track record in advising some of the biggest companies in the world on their marketing product and sales. So, Fergus, welcome to the show. How are you? Steve, it's great to see you. Thanks for a fantastic introduction.
1: I didn't know that you had a crystal ball that you could see. <laughs> if you could tell me what the lottery figures are and the stock market's going to look like that, would be fantastic.
0: It wasn't me it was my producers, but maybe they do. I don't know. I would love to take credit <laughs> for on it. an island in the Caribbean right now. Yeah, that'd exactly. Right. Yeah. I haven't heard from him for a while, actually. Um, now, so before we get into the show, I want to tell the listeners that you and I have known each other for quite a long time, probably 20 years or so. Um, and so, you know, I, I won't go into the last time that we, that, we, um, that we hung out, but it was, yeah, it was certainly very interesting, but probably not for pre-Watershed. Um, but we, we normally do this show in three parts, which is, which is what we talked about before, which is that it's normally around, you know, an origins part of thing, and then there's a middle bit around um, what you're doing to change the world. But to, to, to be honest with you, I think that given your kind of um, the relevance of what you are doing at digital, health, at, at digital home visits, um, I think we might have to jig it around a little bit. So you obviously had a glittering and outstanding advertising career um, and you still do, you know. Um, So at what point, though, did you start to try and understand that there was a, a level that you wanted to ascend to, which was more of this advisory concept? When did that start to kind of feed into your your work, you know, as you were, you know, one of the leading advertising figures for a very long time?
1: Let's do that. That's a great question. It's hey, It's great to, to see you again. I don't know. You have the elixir of youth or something, but you know, most of us <laughs> kind of clearly aged over time. You've done the opposite. Um, so uh, I think for me, it was uh, less so about uh, an advisory world and more so about what. What are the key dynamics that affect society, people, and business? And, you know, we all know and have watched technology grow over the last 20 years. We've seen booms and busts. Mm. But it it seemed clear to me about six, seven years ago that um, technology was becoming um, massively adopted. Like we were all using it. You know, Mm. those dreams we had of kids where you could have a unit that could compute, carry all of your information, that you could call people, that you could video call people. These were the stuff of Hollywood. It wasn't the stuff of real life. But then it just started to happen. And, you know, I think I had a a, a kind of a a light bulb moment when I found myself um, not carrying my wallet anymore. And I was just using my phone to to purchase things. And, you know, the skill of marketing is to understand human behavior. Like, what is it that persuades people to do things? Why do people make emotional and rational decisions? And that is really the fascinating part. And if you chart human behavior over time, you really see kind of the origin stories of of what, what we live today. And so I was fascinated by human behavior. And then I was fascinated by the role that technology was playing in changing human behavior. And that just has converged. And it's really converged over the last kind of seven to 10 years in a mass way. And that led me to start investing it led me to start working with um, big tech and small tech companies to see how they're going to transform the world. And that's how I came across the, um, the future uh, of society, which is digital healthcare. And that started with an, uh, an investment we made in digital home visits back in 2017. And, and since then, I've been running happily down the rabbit warren of um, kind of the Positive role that technology can play, but also the great kind of crises we face from a healthcare perspective, Mm. that of course is on everyone's lips during COVID. And COVID, I think, has made the rock stars of the future not the billionaires who are launching rockets into into sky, but actually the scientists who are using clinical evaluation to solve problems. And that takes us to today, which is why we're so committed to the role of technology in healthcare to um, to improve the quality of health
0: and care in society. That makes sense. And so was it, um, you know, we have a lot of people on the show. Obviously, some people are founders of their own businesses. Some people are clinicians and things like that. And a lot of for a lot of people, it was there was a kind of a, you know, like you say, a light bulb moment. And sometimes it was a personal thing. You know, for me, it was a personal thing. And for some was others, was there a kind of a personal connection to, to health or was it really more of a, you know, from, a, I guess, from a sort of um, technologist perspective where you just you had this epiphany and, and you you felt like that was something that you wanted to get more involved in? Well, from, my, from a personal perspective,
1: um, you know, I think intellectually, I understood that healthcare was important, but until you feel it emotionally, um, it doesn't become real. And obviously, yeah. you know, as you're younger, you have this incredible sense of immortality. You know, yeah. it happens to other people, you know, getting sick happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me as a, in your 20s. But in my late 20s, uh, my fantastically amazing wife um, was diagnosed with a heart condition, um, and she had a defibrillator and pacemaker inserted um, into her heart. She had prolonged QT. And uh, just after we got married, we found out that actually something had gone wrong with the machine and she had to have quite an emergency procedure. And that was in America. We were living in the States. And that's a whole different healthcare system. It's quite terrifying. The kind of yeah. figures involved, of cost of things were just un- un- unbelievable, literally. And so what went from an intellectual experience to being a very, very personal experience happened then. And um, luckily it all worked out fantastically well. And I've got nothing but great things to say about the American healthcare system for those who can afford it. That's yep. a massive question mark for, for the, rest, yeah. the rest of society it leaves behind. And, um, and so that brought it very real to me. And then really for me, um, that was kind of in the back of my cortex. You know, I, I understood and feel the importance of positive healthcare for people and mm-hmm. both a physical and, a, and an emotional and mental well being level. And so, when the opportunity came up to start to get involved on an investment and now at the operational level, um, we and me and a, bu- a bunch of other people took it by both hands. And, and, and you know, it is without doubt a legacy that we can leave positively for our kids if we can provide accessible healthcare that is affordable for the many, is tech-enabled, so it's less draining on on the national resources, and remove the kind of friction that we often find in today's healthcare systems. And and if we can do that, you know, we may we may have completely ruined the planet from a sustainability perspective, but at least we could get some positive out
0: Amen to that. I mean, look, like, I think that that echoes a lot of the reasons why I do what I do. And you know, and not just me, but like if you you know, like I said, we have one of the reasons I love doing the show is to get people on like yourselves and, and the other guests that we've had who are just so inspiring and inspired by this mission everyone in healthcare generally has a mission and there's there's normally a story behind it you know that's why i asked and i think that that's an incredibly inspiring thing and a, and, a, and a great way to spend your time on on, on the on the planet but steve um, i mean you're, you're an entrepreneur
1: yourself so you know you were in a different industry pre um pre-pop doc so so what what happened with you and and what was the impact
0: well, of covid no, it's a great question so you know for me personally you know not not everyone knows this is is um you know, my, my dad had a had a stroke that nearly killed him when I was 15. And, um, you know, and, and some of the causes of that weren't related to, to anything, some of it was just bad luck. But there were a lot of exacerbating factors that related to cardiovascular disease. And, um, you know, could have been if, if it had been monitored things, simple things like blood pressure, hypertension, cholesterol levels, you know, back back then, it wasn't necessarily as easy to do those things. And, you know, that, that had a devastating effect on our family. Um, and so from that young age, I sort of had a a pretty clear idea of mortality you know from from a young very young age and then as i moved through my 20s and got older you know um two of my very close friends died you know before they were sort of 31 32 and so i sort of you know had a bit of a moment where i i, I was pretty clear you know not different different kind of factors to you but sort of a similar type of awakening about how the fragility of life and you know actually well, i mean do i, I could spend my time doing you know any old tech business, right? Yeah. You know, probably be pretty successful at it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I was sort of inspired to try and make a difference. Um, and, and still am inspired to try and make a difference. And, you know, the, the business that we're in, as far as POCDOC is concerned, really speaks to some of the things that that had they been around, you know, for my father, maybe things might have been a bit different, you know, like access to blood testing, access to your personal data. Obviously smartphones weren't available back like then, but you know, trying to democratize the healthcare process and give people access to things to help to digitize things so that we can take strain off of the healthcare system but people do get access to that information that they can then take action on so instead of just saying oh well you know go away and lose some weight and you know try and switch to flora instead of butter well that how do we create that positive feedback loop so that you understand by making those changes my cholesterol has just lowered itself but we can do that in a way that doesn't require people to continually go back into the healthcare system which is massively overburdened and get blood tests done and then go back to the doctors to get the results and so on and so forth. So, so what,
1: what I recognize in that, Steve, is, um, is a feeling that, that I felt during my wife's situation. And then, by the way, my eldest son, when he was born, because they were worried it was congenital, what she had, he was right. then in NICU for what seemed like a century. Yeah. And, um, and what I felt was just helpless. I just felt yeah. c- completely helpless. And, and that's a, a very discombobulating feeling for anyone and and that's partly because of course it's an incredibly specialized world the medical practice and and at no point should someone unqualified be <laughs> <laughs> that. But,
0: yeah, that's just time. for the record that's not yeah, what we're saying yeah,
1: yeah yeah exactly no bot is going to be a doctor yeah. We're, we're gonna, but but you know as a recipient of the care I just felt so blind and I didn't know what I could have done differently I didn't know what prevention and prevention really is something I really want to talk about today is what, what could we have done from a prevention perspective to avoid getting into that situation and it just felt I was completely powerless and I don't did you feel the same with with your experience with with the kind of yeah people? I mean
0: yeah, look I think with, with, with all of them the first one I was pretty young you know so I didn't really have much I mean, I didn't know my arse from my elbow, you know, I, so I didn't quite know what was going on. And, but yes, yeah, so a complete helplessness. Um, and then and then later on with with, with my friends, yeah, it was it was a bolt from the blue and it, it sort of, I didn't know how to, it was frustrating, right? Because I didn't know why it had happened or how. And yeah. you know, that, that search for an answer, sometimes there just isn't an answer. But sometimes there is, right? There is sometimes something someone can do. Sometimes, unfortunately, you get struck by lightning and that just like, that's obviously horrendous. But sometimes and a lot of this case, like if you look at the things that take up a huge amount of cost within the healthcare system, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, both extremely preventable. One might say wholly preventable, depending upon how you know, much you want to stir the pot. Um, you know, so w- my view, I don't know if it, it sounds like you might share the same opinion, but is that we have to focus on where we can make a difference, where we can change something, because there are some things that we just cannot change. So let's focus a lot of our view of PocDoc is let's try and help where we can help to to try and improve the situation to free up resources, free up money and time so that that can be dedicated to places where, you know, unfortunately there there are situations that can't be can't be dealt with. So there's a the phrase going doing the rounds at the moment: it's working to the top of your grade, right? Mm-hmm. Like. If we can allow people and give people access to simple blood testing, just using their smartphone, wherever it happens to be, whether it's in a clinic, in a waiting room, at home, in a mosque, in a community center, that is going to help us understand and screen for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, get people treated more quickly, help them change their behavior. You know, it's the access to testing, which, we, which we've said Look, access to testing is the, is, is the single biggest plank, uh, apart from vaccinations, for, for managing COVID. Why would it be different to anything else?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Mean, and again, that's kind of empowerment. And when I was thinking, you know, when you talked about the three kind of personal um, tragedies, uh, if I can call them that, that you went mm-hmm. through, um, what the data reports is the number of incidents, more, you know, death, survive, long tail, yeah. beds filled, drain on. So. But what it doesn't report on is the mental health drain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? And, and when, when a loved one goes through a crisis like that, whether they come out, um, hopefully, fine, or if they come out, you know, with a with a long long tailing illness or worse, in your case, you know, a couple of a couple of deaths, mm-hmm. the mental health impact on those around is really significant. Yeah, and and that's not measured, you know. <laughs> I don't know, and so it's not really then, you know, it's discussed in theory, but it's not really actively resolved. And and I it's think so much of it is about if you can do preventative care. You can um, avoid um, or minimise sudden crises. You can Mm. build mental health, wellness, insulation um, around people so that they're not dealing with sudden shocks all the time. And and I think all of this is interconnected to create a more positive society. And, you know, the impact of that is, of course, on our kids. Yeah. If you can have a positive society that is looking after each other, that is maintaining people in a positive um, quality of life that um, tries to avoid mental health strife through um, through crisis, then you know you're creating a generation that hopefully will be equipped with empathy to make the right decision again, that's not measurable, but that, I think that's something that I feel increasingly um, quite passionate about
0: I, I would agree, and I, I think that one of the things that, that i've I've noticed and you know I'm not the only person to say it is that a lot of those, a lot of the things you just talked about. You know really have to be or, or should be being delivered digitally, if not wholly, then, then in part you know so if we 're looking at ways to increase the efficiency of healthcare systems you know, in, in a you know not just before the pandemic but but but, but now particularly after the pandemic we, we have to be looking at ways to digitize access to mental health care access to certain services because you, you can 't just keep training new people. To, to act as counsellors you should be doing that that makes sense but th- that won't fill the gap you'll, you'll never close that gap and so that's where I believe um one of the biggest roles for for digital healthcare is is it actually um providing access to services that otherwise would not be scalable yeah. and therefore would not be accessible for people but I don't know what you think
1: well you know it, it was so interesting uh, we lived in the states for a, for, for a period of time and Kind of in, in all three pillars of it, so east coast, midwest, west coast, and um, what is clear is that the quality of healthcare there is outstanding for those who can afford it. Right, and um, you know that that's great because if you're in a in a decently employed job, uh, you're most likely going to have healthcare coverage from your employer. But um, there was a, a a poll recently that said 87 percent of CEOs say that within the next five to ten years, the levels of healthcare cost to businesses is unsustainable. So what that means is, you know, you're going to have more people with less access to uh, to private health insurance, which means what? You know, that, that's yeah. a great chasm. For yeah, people what what and,
0: happens? Well, like, I mean, what, yeah, I know,
1: right. There was there was Obama's Medicaid um, policy, which was repealed by our favorite Republican president of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And God rest his political soul. Let's hope. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and 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 you're left in the chasm. And, and you flip it to the UK and you go, well, we don't have that issue. We have, you know, an amazingly principled, great vision um, NHS system. But we also know that the legacy infrastructure is so challenging that, again, yeah. people are left in a chasm of
0: access. To yeah, people. I agree. Um, and I, look, I know that we're speaking on that note. I want to pick up and move the conversation on to everything that you're doing within social care. So we're just going to we're going to we're going to stop now for a quick commercial break and then we will be back after a couple of minutes. We'll be right back. Thanks. station that makes you feel good how good are vitamin c supplements usually only a small proportion of vitamin c actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect whereas the high absorption levels of goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin c help maintain optimal vitamin c levels in your body and strengthen your immune system now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-cure laser, a home use CE approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double blind trial has shown that B-cure laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. Get your special B Cure offer now. Call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B Cure Laser. B Cure Laser. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Good, good. All right. Hello. Welcome back. We are with Fergus Hay and um, we are about to talk about social care. So, Fergus, as we said at the top of the show, is the chair of the Digital Home Visits Group. Um, and so I think we'll just start this by saying, Fergus, tell us about how your, you got involved with social care and what Digital Home Visits Group does and that kind of thing. Because it's, again, very topical. So like how, how did that all come about? Well, so in um, 2017,
1: um, a great friend of mine, John White, uh, and great investor um, in this space, Um, introduced me to a company called Digital Home Visits. And uh, the company uh, had an idea, they had a concept. They said, look, there is a um, social care crisis. We've got ageing population, which we all know about. And we've got um, a lot of people who need care. And they saw an inefficiency in the care delivery. They said, look, it's difficult to get carers to the right place at the right time, armed with the right historical information on the individual to ensure that they deliver a good quality of care. So let's create an Uber of care, was the vision. And we got excited about that. We got excited about the macros um, in society. We we could see that the population was ageing so fast. In fact, we saw a report that said that over 70% of the UK population growth between 2014 and 2039 will be in the over 60 years age group. So that is an increase of 15 million people to 22 million people. So you right. sit there and you go, well, you know, on the macro, that, that is a big societal um, challenge mm. that we've got coming. And so we went in, um, you know, we, we invested and, uh, and the team built a um, technology pro- uh, product that would enable people to uh, more efficiently um, staff carers to those in need. And, uh, and we went down that pipeline. And as we went into that pipeline, others were doing the same. People were building these care ops uh, software platforms, and they're an important part of the industry, and they, and they make a difference. But the more we got into it, the more we saw a much bigger, bigger issue. And, and this is what we're seeing at the fulcrum of the social care debate um, today, which is happening within the social care sector, but frustratingly not at the government level. But okay. um, so, so what we saw was the... The the need for care is, of course, increasing. The issue is not, can we get people to the right place in the right time? The issue is that there are 45,000 unstaffed domiciliary care jobs in the UK right now. Wait, run that
0: one by me? Run run, run me by that again? There is
1: of 45,000 domiciliary carers in the UK. So we need 45,000 people who vocationally are passionate about caring, are geolocated in the right places to be able to get to people's homes to Mm. look after them at home. That means that your grandmother, Steve,
0: Mm. if
1: she needs care, the odds are there's not going to be someone available to look after. Right. And if you look at that ageing population dynamic, you sit there and go, my gosh, this isn't an issue that needs to resolve. This is the ticking time bomb that is sitting within British society. This is a society where we take great, great pride and great stock in caring after each other responsibly. That's a kind of a Brit, British value, a Britic, British ethic. And yet we're in a situation where there's a shortfall of labour There just aren't the people. And now you add in Brexit. Yeah. You add in the fact that, um, you know, we're in the toughest economic crisis the UK has faced post-Second World War. We're still at four and a half percent levels of unemployment which is remarkably low which means that there aren't people looking for the kind of flexible work that uh, and it's and it's and it's hard yards being a carer yeah, you know? it's hard yeah. it's emotionally hard you've got to vocationally want it so the bottom line is this in the social care sector for domiciliary care in particular people looking after you in your home has got a labor deficit a mm-hmm. serious labor deficit and we sat there and we thought, crikey, that, that poses a real problem. So let's play out what the impact of that is. At best, social care in its current dom- domiciliary care and its current sect, um, current guys, is reactive. What I mean by that is your grandma, let's call her Mary, she mm-hmm. um, either has a urinary tract infection, a lung infection, or she's fallen over at home. These are the three things that normally are what we call acute issues. It sends you into mm-hmm. the NHS for hospital treatment and then you go on to the social care programme where you get government-funded um, social care at home where there's a 45,000-person shortfall in labour. Right. So what happens is um, Mary, Steve's grandma, has one of these incidents and then she's in the social care sector. But Mary lies in bed in the hospital and Mary is physically able to return home. So the NHS is saying, we need this bed so that we can look after the other people with crises. But because there's a 45,000-person shortfall in the labour market, there is no one to care after Mary when she gets home. So Mary becomes a bed blocker. And a bed blocker is someone who's using up an NHS hospital bed because the care system hasn't got the the staff to be able to look after Mary in her home, in which case she would then be um, neglected. So in 2019, just to put some numbers on this.
0: Yeah, I was gonna two and ask half
1: Million hospital days were taken up in the UK due to bed blocking.
0: Sorry, two, two and, and a half, half million million
1: hospital beds, hospital days were taken up in the UK because of bed blocking. Wow. What you're talking about is a bottleneck of the most Boa constrictor-esque proportions. We've got labour shortage. We've got an ageing population. We've got the NHS who need to free up beds. But because there's a labour shortage in the care market, we cannot get people into, uh, to get domiciliary care at home. So they're using up NHS beds. Then you add in a pandemic, you add in a serious need for hospital beds, which is why the system is incredibly under strain at the moment. Now, we didn't know. We didn't have your crystal ball <laughs> where we could forecast um, that the world would be turned on its head so much. But we could see that this was a problem. So what we wanted to do is say, look, at worst, care in the UK is palliative. At best, it's reactive. But Mm -hmm. shouldn't it be positive? Shouldn't we have a positive care world where Mary is actually, her quality of life is improved and not just managed decline? And if you're going to improve it, shouldn't we then take the strain off the NHS? stop people going into the hospital with acute mm. issues, stop that drain on the uh, really limited social care labour supply. And actually, instead of, instead of trying to resolve 45,000 people and train them to becoming carers, can't we prevent people from going into that space? And that's where we saw technology playing, uh, playing a role. So we, we set ourselves a vision. What we wanted to do was create a positive care society where mm-hmm. we can use technology to identify issues in the, in the elderly and the vulnerable before they become acute, before they become hospital issues, so that we can keep them on the right side of, uh, of that experience, maintain them in their own homes with a high, higher quality of care. And then for those that do have acute issues, they have access to the carers who have got less strain on the system. And that's where our vision took us. And that's where we developed um, uh, technology. So we've been in R&D for over three years now. And developing predictive analytics engines that can identify issues in the, in the elderly and the vulnerable to ensure that we can treat them before they become acute. And in that process, we've understood lots about society. We've understood lots about the issues that affect people. And we've also understood that actually you really need to have that army of carers who are well looked after, well trained, well mm. served, and who, and who can look after those in need. So since then, we have been Um, opening up our own care agencies and this is under the name of Vida, and then we've acquired a new care um, uh, domiciliary care agency that gives us an access to over 20,000 hours of care a month um, in Mm -hmm. the midlands and we will continue to do that. We have a vision that will build the technology and we will acquire domiciliary care agencies so that we have the care to offer and the technology to deliver preventative care and we think that'll shift society to the right Mm -hmm. side of um, draining draining uh, draining the national resources
0: well i mean that those are some incredible statistics in there i just want to go back a couple of steps and just kind of ask a couple of questions so with the when you when you spoke at the beginning was um around the inefficiencies in the system previously to, to when you started digital health group what were some of those inefficiencies and and have they continued? Have they got worse? I mean, what, what are those, what are the kind of systemic challenges of the industry within social care? Because, you know, I'm not an expert in the industry. Many people, I think think this is the thing with social care strikes me as a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot by a lot of people. And maybe people don't necessarily understand the full details or implications of it. So what are those systemic challenges within the system? Well, well, let's talk about the good things first. Sure.
1: You know, I have got nothing but amazing experiences of those who work in the social care system. You know, these are people who also have personal stories often, you know, they are born with a vocation, you know, they want Mm. to care for people and they do it regardless of circumstance. You know, Mm -hmm. their first, and I'll tell you, there's there's an amazing lady. Um, I won't name her name, but she'll know who she is. She looks after our our operation in, in, um, in London. And, uh, And I had a long chat with her and she comes from a family where she grew up caring for her loved ones, uh, parents and, and her own children. And she gets vitality from waking up in the morning and caring for those who need it. And it's so humbling because when you come from the kind of commercial world, you know, often people wake up. In the morning to get a bigger mortgage <laughs> you know, yeah. you know yeah. to get that car that they've always wanted so it's of course slightly soulless but here you're talking about people who really aren't committed to helping others and it's such a powerful it's, it made me so proud actually of mm. britishness actually in a, in a in a decade where there's not been a huge amount to be proud of um, that that was something that really touched me and, and she knows who she is so she'll be listening mm-hmm. up, i'm sure and, um, so, I think that's a really good side about social care. There is a cultural attitude to wanting to care, and there's really, really, really driven and motivated people who are remarkable. The challenges are the infrastructure and the legacy um to deliver it is very, very, very old okay and it's analog it's paper and pen it's full of people doing the wanting to do the right thing, but without the tools or the um coaching on a modern ways of doing things and and one of the challenges is that 80 percent of social care is funded by the government which okay. is okay okay brilliant so the government are committed to it you know we we've seen data that has shown that they've pledged 79 billion incremental um spend between now and 2064 to the to the social care crisis and we've seen okay. that you know in uh, back a couple of years ago we saw an extra 4 billion put in we've just seen nominally a 12 billion um pledge which we should talk about what that actually yeah, we, yeah. and and you know at the moment the government spends between 25 to 30 billion a year on social care 25 right, to so 30 billion is the current budget yeah
0: i mean it's not exactly a small ticket item
1: huge ticket item and that's not the nhs right the nhs is separate that is just social care so but right. that money flows through government structures that are built on, on more analogue approaches. They want to change. We see that, but it takes time. And in the, sh- in the meantime, what, what isn't changing is the rate of ageing. That's not changing. <laughs> that's speeding up. People are yeah. uh, living longer. And we've got this labour deficit. So we've got this horrible crunch. And at the moment, we don't have a bridge.
0: Right. So, and when you, um, when you mentioned the 45,000, I mean, that, that figure, 45,000 unfilled vacancies, that doesn't happen overnight. So, w- w- at what point did w- at, w- at what point did the sort of supply and demand ratios within the labour market within social care start to sort of get slightly out of sync with each other? Yeah. W- w- was there a particular reason for that? Because uh, you, you don't, it doesn't just. I, I'm guessing it doesn't just happen year to year that forty five thousand people drop out of the, the labour force. So, no, no, you're, you're bang on. And, and by the way, that's exactly
1: the right way to look at it: supply and demand, because it, because this is a supply led market, and okay. and um. I, I, don't, I can't give you a data point of oh. uh, when it changed, but um, as far as I can see, it's always been thus. Okay. And, okay. And, but as, thing, as we've got an aging population, it has become more complex, right? Mm. So, um, so and, and like everything, you know, when you have an ossified problem and an ossified mm-hmm. system, it's difficult to change. And, you know, and this, and this brings us into the, the,
0: the government policy, and, you know, I'd love to get your views on it, but the headline looked great, didn't it? Yeah. Phenomenal headline, right? I mean, look,
1: headline.
0: I mean, I mean, you know, Boris is Boris, is, Boris is many things, but he's good at a headline. I'll give him that. It, it's a cracking headline.
1: And and, and to be fair, and, and, and I'm, I don't have a political sway either way, but um, we clearly have a crisis in capacity in the NHS um, and social care. And it is good that the government is pledging more money into it. Good. And that is consistent. by the yeah. way. The government has been topping up a while so that's great and 12 billion sounds like sounds like a lot um, the challenge we've got is that um that money has gone to the NHS for the first three years and I yeah. completely understand why that would be the case you know you see we see the uh the, the reports from the NHS because they often need um support in looking after people who are, who haven't got a bed in hospital from the domiciliary care market so we see that and we know that they they're, they're under stress and I'm sure that this winter is going to be difficult you know, this winter is going to be difficult. You know, yeah, COVID is be our bedfellow for the foreseeable future. You know, we need to live, we need to learn how to cohabit with COVID. And, uh, and that will be with us. We've got legacy operations that haven't been resolved. We've got um, cancer patients who've, who haven't had access to their treatment. You know, we, we are in for another crunch. So it is right and proper that the NHS is buttressed as, as much as possible. But the reality is, if you take the spanning, so the money doesn't drop into social care for another three years. Right. It doesn't drop into the social care for another three years. And when it does drop in, it equates to about a five percent increase on the current annual budget. If you do the math. Right. So you can cut and you can cut and chop it in different ways, but fundamentally it's about a five percent increase on, on the mm-hmm. current annual budget. But the reality is that is at the same rate of increase as the aging population. So the demand is gonna keep going up. Yeah. Right. And so that it in a way it's like an investment to stand still. Okay. And and that is um, so that isn't solving the problem. And fundamentally, like I said, if it's a supply led market, the government can keep topping up the budget, but they're not solving the forty five thousand person shortfall in in labour.
0: No, actually, and 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 uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say. I mean, pumping more money into the system is a bit like quantitative easing you know under under you know when, when we had the financial crisis it sort of floods them the system with more money but does it actually address the underlying issues that 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 are being that does that make people take up those jobs and it sounds like it might not I mean I don't unless that goes to an increase in wage I mean in theoretic if you look at sort of economic theory you would want to increase wages until the point at which people wanted to take those jobs yeah. I don't quite know how that, I don't know enough of the details.
1: And they may well do that. They, you know, they right. may well do that. And, um, and I think the domiciliary care market would react well to that. They would okay. say, look, if, we, if you want us to hire more people to be carers, we need to persuade them to do a tough job. Mm-hmm. And part of that will be the economics. And if the government fixed pricing. So if the government say we're willing to up the pricing for the government contracts, then you will see more labor. That's sure.
0: Right. But
1: let, let, let's look at it in a different way, Steve. I think that that 45,000 labour deficit is a a real challenge. But if we can look at what technology can do outside of that to reduce the need for care in in such a same way, then we can really, really make a difference. And if we can shift the focus into prevention. Now, the reality is the government intellectually get that. The government have got a lot on their plate um, and, and they're pledging more income. But it's the private sector that drives innovation. You know, the way to look at it is, in my view, is the private sector will innovate to solve the problem and the public sector will adopt and deploy. And that suits their, their, their different skill sets. And look, we can look into the market. Who is using technology to radically improve care experience you know babylon they're a, they're a, they're a uk-based unicorn they've used yep. technology to shorten the path to uh, gp care Benevolent. Yep. AI have used technology to get to ca- uh, to get to um drugs faster all of this is how the private sector needs to use venture capital great talent mission driven to solve a problem and then we can mm-hmm. look to the government to go okay let's adopt and deploy that at scale
0: yeah i would agree with that I think that makes total sense, and yeah, you, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, governments aren't best placed to drive innovation. What they're best place to do is to um, adopt it once it's been tested, and where possible, put money via grants and you know however else you want to do it to encourage private sector to solve these issues. Right? I think that that makes that I would completely agree with you on that score. And you must be seeing that yourself on on, on the testing side of the business. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think what the government did very very effectively as a related, you know, as part of COVID was to pump a huge amount of money through the innovate UK program. You know, we won two innovate UK awards, but you know, they, they did a very, very good job. And, and, and if you look at the, the, the partnership that we have with NHS digital now and and, and department of health and social care, you know, it's, it's very much a multi-vendor grant based concept where they they actually are trying to outsource a lot of the intellectual capital development to the private sector to then bring it back in house, which makes total sense. You know, I don't quite, you know, those things might take a while to kind of come on stream at scale, you know, because it's sort of a bit of a new concept, I think. But I, w- I would agree. And I think the other the other thing, particularly w- with regards to venture capital, um, is, is ensuring that there is a healthy um, venture cap that there that, 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 that is that continues to be a healthy health tech VC venture capital, private investment environment in the UK is is only going to benefit the NHS. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'd love
0: to dive into
1: that because I think it's a fascinating part that government can play in the future.
0: Yeah, so just before we, um, I think we're going to have to break for a commercial in a couple of minutes, but just before we do, I'd love to understand a bit more about the predictive, um, the predictive work that you're doing with Vida and Digital Home Group. So for, could you walk us through maybe like a case study, or you doesn't have to be real, but more like an imagined one. So how might sure. those predictives keep somebody out of hospital that otherwise may have become a bed blocker? Well, well, here, here's a working hypothesis.
1: Let's go back to Mary, your, your. Friend. Mary, I'm sure Mary. I, I've got a, a vision in my head that Mary is really delightful. She, she's got the stuff sure that you lacked, you know, yeah. all, those, all those elements. But um, so, so, like we said, there are three things that I'm most likely to send Mary into um, into hospital. Um, that will be um, a urinary tract infection, a lung infection, or a fall. Now, two of those three things um, can be resolved really quickly and easily if they are caught early. Mm-hmm. So let's say that um, you have a monitoring device in Mary's bungalow or, or shared home or, or home. And uh, that monitoring device might be a microphone, it might be the size of an Amazon Echo. It's you know, yep. a small, small piece. And it sits in her home and it monitors her baseline sound patterns. So what is her baseline mm-hmm. coughing rate? What is her baseline rate for flushing the loop? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then what are the sound patterns you expect in different rooms in the house so that you can have a core baseline so yep. that if Mary was to start to beat that baseline let's say she used to cough twice every hour and suddenly it goes to four times every hour not noticeable to Mary not noticeable right. to a loved one who pops in to see Mary once every day but noticeable on the day to break and then let's say that, that rate of increase keeps going the reality is that Mary, because she's a post-war uh, generation, she's b- born not to complain, not to go to mm-hmm. the doctor, you know, unless, unless you know, she can't stand, she hasn't got a problem. So Mary is yeah. unlikely to tell grandson Steve that, yeah. um, that, that she's got an issue.
0: Until... Yeah. Go, on, go on, go on. No, as you say, and also, you know, depending upon how, you know, what your situation at your general practitioner might be like, calling them up and saying, look, I've got a slight cough, they're not going to see you anyway yeah they're going to say well okay slight cough you know it's autumn i don't know you know get some rest drink lots of fluids give us another call but even by the time that she's called up the
1: doctor it's probably too late because the reality with this age group is and and by the way it's the same with the urinary tract infection because if she starts flushing the loo more frequently than she normally does that Mm. means she's you know she's using her bladder more frequently than usually she does and again you can spot urinary tract infection quite early. So these two issues can be resolved. If caught early, they can be resolved with simple treatment at home and, and the issue goes away. If yep. you wait until they're noticeably symptomatic, and in this case, for this generation, that might be Mary coughing up blood. That yeah, might be exactly. Mary being in pain from a hacking cough, by which point yep. it's too late. She's already infected. So she's already, yep. that's just a, a question of when is she going to go into hospital?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I know, and we can come on to this in a second, but there's so much work going into this space of sort of predictive analytics in different yeah. capacities in different locations and different user groups. But yeah, no, it makes, it makes absolute total sense. So, so the use case is, you know,
1: uh, predictive analytics, it, it flags an issue. It pings the carer, the clinician, a loved one to say grandma Mary has um, is seems to have the early signs of a, uh, of a, l- a lung infection. get her her seen asap and that would keep her out of an acute situation keeps her out of hospital keeps her out of the system
0: right on that note we're going to break now for another couple of minutes of commercial breaks and then we'll be right back and we'll talk about the investment landscape in the uk and why it's so awesome for health tech businesses right now uk health radio the station that makes you feel good scalar light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe from the sun and stars now tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher has created the world's only scalar light healing system a system that can bring long distance healing and wellness to humans pets and plants via a photograph Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now, but did you
1: know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you
0: healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit
1: uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects
0: you. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello. Okay. Welcome back. We're moving into the final part of the show now with Fergus Hay, who's the chair of Digital Health um, Digital Home Visits, and um, we have just gone into detail about their Digital Home Visits Vida predictive analytics that will help diagnose um, uh, elderly patients within the social care system to um, prevent them prevent the need for them to go into hospital, which is partly to aid the to to relieve the stress on the system. And one of the things we spoke about, you know, a few minutes ago, was the 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 environment or, or the we believe or I believe the onus on government to create and continue to maintain a healthy vibrant health tech private investment um, sector in the UK because private sector will be the source of innovation that can then be rolled out at scale across the public sector but yeah that's what we were talking about so Fergus what's your thoughts
1: Well, you know, uh, I've got the privilege to sit on the advisory board of uh, Rise Health, which is a um, digital venture capitalist firm. And um, I'm learning so much from these guys because um, the the kind of the principles of it. Um, A gentleman called Shabir Cowdery, who is a a very, very established um, investor, and um, Dr. John Lee Allen, who comes from a clinical background and an entrepreneurship background? They are merging these two worlds. You know what they will say is, we absolutely agree that there is a big societal challenge um, to be resolved to ensure that we are creating a more positive health um, world. But the answer lies in not just commerce and not just clinical, but in the integration of these two worlds. And when you when you've got the, this kind of talent and brain power, you really start to see. Where the opportunity is. And like I said before, I I think the innovation will come in the private sector and it will be funded by the investors. And what we're seeing is a huge amount of investor capital being pointed towards um, the healthcare space. And that's um, because people obviously see the commercial returns, but -hmm. also increasingly, people want to have purpose driven capital. They they want to invest in things that are doing the right thing for society and delivering outstanding returns. And Mm -hmm. that is great. That is fuel for the fantastic intelligence and creativity that lies in the uk health sector there are so many of these clinical entrepreneurs either people who are doctors and um, and come from that world or they've been on the receiving end of it like yourself where they've seen yep. as a patient or a beneficiary or as a, a loved one where the gaps in the market are and so mm-hmm. this capital and this creativity coming together can only be a good thing for society and and, and the way that rise look at it is they say the future is where the great, this, this convergence will solve the problem. So we must get to the future first. Let's get there first. Let's yeah. get the ideas. Let's get the capital. Let's get them together and start to solve the challenges in the healthcare system. And that's where we see really, really great, um, great potential.
0: I would agree. I think what, one thing that the NHS has done very, very, very well is to recognise that um, private, in, private companies have to be fostered and encouraged within the digital health space. So there's a number of programs. You know, I know that RISE is connected to the one that we're an alumni of, the Digital Health London program. There's another one called the National Innovation Accelerator. And then even within the NHS itself, there's a, there's a program called the Clinical Entrepreneurship Program, whereby the NHS actually encourages clinicians to effectively spin themselves out and move into an entrepreneurial role. So to take all of the, the knowledge and understanding of the system and then go off and actually create private companies, raise finance to then sort of come back in and help solve those problems. And actually, I don't think that often gets a lot of credit, but that, that those things are actually pretty innovative because that's sort of an admission to say, look, we know we can't solve all these things ourselves. You know, we, we have to engage with that ecosystem. I think that's
1: right. And, and you know, again, think britain does this well i think i think britain has invested into intellectual capital and education and entrepreneurship really really well and we see that you know across lots of different sectors and and i think that's why we retain a kind of disproportionately large influence on on this world you know if you went into the stats by the way of the origination of technology unicorns businesses valued over a billion you'd be amazed at how much ip came out of the uk you know you know the technology behind siri came out of the uk You know there are cool. so, so many. Uh, DeepMind was was founded out, out of the UK. So so many examples of that. So I think government good, but here is the reality: is that um, government um, aren't commercial themselves. They're brilliant at stimulating the economy. That's you know, part of their, part of their role. But we must bridge from these brilliant clinical entrepreneurs, these people who are uh, real specialists who see the opportunity with the realities of building a venture backed business, building yeah. customers delivering on sales and building scale. And that, that's where this world of um, healthcare and commerce need to kind of blend together. And, and, and that's what RISE are trying to do and many other great, great institutions are trying to do. And so much of that, from what I can see, comes down from taking the problem and the solution, which is the creativity bit, and then working out the distribution. How mm-hmm. is it that we can take PocDocs innovation and get it into the hands of the nation? Yep. and and you could, the government is one way for doing that but there are others and uh and you know so one of the things that we try to do at rise is to say let's look at the idea and who do we know from a distribution perspective that is going to give it scale how are we yeah. going to get it into the hands of the nurses and the doctors or the or the or the mass public so that you can really solve this problem on, on, a, on a mass on a mass
0: issue and that that's really a key a key part to the solution i think yeah and i think that that's you know one of the things that, that i've certainly come across i mean as, as you say you know my background wasn't in healthcare. Um, you know, until, until I sort of started started this company, um, but but having been in a highly commercial environment, it, it became pretty clear to me that having a having an excellent product or technology in healthcare is obviously the first gating factor. Like you say, you know, having a problem, having a solution, but you are still a really long way from actually having a business at that point. Yeah. You know, and there's a, a, and because it's a highly regulated market. You know, the requirements on capital earlier on in the process to get you over the hump in order so that you can start selling is obviously greater than in certain unregulated or lightly, more lightly regulated markets. So there's things where early stage capital is, is really critical in in healthcare. you know, because otherwise you, you won't be able to raise enough money to develop your product to an extent where you can even sell it to anybody to prove product market fit so your excellent technology may just never get off the shelf because you can't raise enough capital and also within health tech there's a and so i i'm I'm a commercial and sales mentor for a um um, health tech accelerator called start codon which is based up in cambridge run by a great couple of guys called jason mellard and dan rook and um you know they focus traditionally on really quite high tech um high-tech end of things drug discovery small molecules precision targeting drugs that type of thing and all of the founders pretty consistently are highly technical people um and i provide some commercial coaching to them because having a great idea and having a problem and having a solution is not is not going to be enough you know it's a highly competitive market if you're focused on raising venture capital private investment you know as it should be right there should be due diligence and, and all that kind of all that stuff i'm not saying that there shouldn't be but um you have to be able to have those commercial conversations and also understand how to demonstrate the commercial viability of your product or your service, you know, as opposed to a more academic approach is really sort of just explaining what your technology does and explain the results. And then that sort of, you know, you roll onto the next paper or you, you know, you roll onto the next bits of research funding and that's how it works. But that's not really the, the, the I, I think that to, to your point around backing clinical entrepreneurs and providing them with finance to to scale out as quickly as possible. I completely agree with because, you know, there's a there's a huge amount of innovation within academia, academia, within research that just doesn't necessarily end up going anywhere. And, you know, I think the responsibility is on us for that,
1: because, you know, what crimes a society is it if we have these brilliant entrepreneurs who are so they see things that we just we, we can't see and they've got the solutions but we haven't mobilized the commercial arm to distribute it. You know, I mean, yeah, what, what yeah. That it yeah.
0: I, I agree. And like, you know, one of the people I was speaking to, you know, recently on, on, on this course was a you know professor, eminent professor in his area and had got a company, but, but was sort of asking questions like, how do I, how should I run a meeting? How should I do a commercial pitch? How should I, how should I sell to big farmer and yeah. what's the difference and what should I say? And sort of, yeah. you know, you, you, being a domain expert in your thing is obviously critical to, to have got your, your business to that point, but it's someone has to step in and help those people, but I'll right? Give you because otherwise that's not going to go anywhere.
1: I mean, I'll give you an example of that. There's a, there's a great company called Not Care, which is um, one of our portfolio companies. And they're a tele- telemedicine business, you know? So we, we've seen those platforms. And they're based out in Portugal. But the peculiar challenge that they faced is that there isn't the infrastructure in Portugal to access healthcare um, in the same way. There wasn't a go-to-market plan for a telemedicine um, platform. So actually, the, the commercial team within that organization spotted what the opportunity was. The opportunity was not going through the government, which is what mm. every other telemedicine tries to do, but actually to go through the local insurance companies. Right. And so then and the local insurance companies took it up. They're like, great, we can give our customers access to gps on the phone fantastic reduces that potentially um, our needs to pay out gives us a competitive differentiation fantastic and then the founders of not said okay well let's look at markets where there isn't the infrastructure that we benefit from in western europe so they yeah. went to nigeria they right. went to chile they went to all of these markets where you got people who need access to gps have uh, web-enabled platforms but don't have the local infrastructure to get it. And that's a great example of how you can take a problem solution and then some smart commercial thinking about how to go to market with a partner like an insurance company to fund it. And that's where alchemy creates the solution.
0: You know, that is exactly
1: what will change the future um, experience of healthcare in in our market. That's where our kids should look up to us and go, oh, well, the legacy this generation gave us is you've been able to take the great creativity in this clinical entrepreneur world and address it to, healthcare problems at scale and not just in the academic world or in niche
0: yeah and I think that that ties into a really key point that that I should you know I want to make people aware of which is that it's it's very easy to be very UK centric then probably US centric really probably is like the next one you know and that's those are probably the two healthcare systems that, that that we have the most exposure to um and that you know the UK system it's hard to navigate around the NHS, you know, in, in some way, shape or form, you end up having to integrate or not integrate, but interact with it in some way, shape or form. Uh, and that controls a lot of the way that the UK healthcare market runs. Similarly, in the US, you can't really do much there unless you work with the insurance companies and so on. Whereas if you, you know, in certain other markets, whether it's Asia or Africa or South America, like you say, none of that really exists. And so you th- there is an opportunity for for entrepreneurs, health tech businesses to effectively... Yeah. Just deal directly with the consumer in a way that is not really feasible um, in, in Western Europe or in, or in the U.S., which is super exciting. Well, that's what they say. You know, um, what is it? Nece-
1: um, necessity is the mother of all invention. So, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately, the greatest creativity comes in, in, in the toughest environments. And, and really, we need that culture here in the U.K. Um, I'm so excited about what I'm seeing. I'm just seeing such incredible um, talent in the U.K. space um, solving problems. And I think it's incumbent on um, the commercial world to find a way to give those ideas life. And, and that's what we're doing at Rise. That's what we're doing at Digital Home Visits. You know, we are absolutely committed to solving problems at scale and not and not in minutiae. And if we can do that, then we can make a positive
0: impact on the society. Great. Well, look, on that note, Fergus, we've reached the end of the show. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Very timely. Thank you for all the insights about the social care space. I mean, that that was all news to me. So I'm sure it was the same way to a lot of our listeners. You know, best of luck with everything with Rise and digital home visits. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening.
1: Pleasure, Steve. You're doing a terrific job. I love the show and um, look forward to listening to your next
0: episodes. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Now shine like Christmas, heels on six inches, waist cinched smoke, laugh you can't have this, you can't hit this, I got a new man in my business, and he all about his business, and his name ain't her neo-business, oh, oh,
1: oh. I've girl on that poster, say so like I'm Doja. Icy, wifey, body shape, Coca-Cola. I got a new man in my business. And he all about his business. And his name ain't none of your business. Oh, oh, oh. Let them know,
0: oh baby, let them know.